she talked about the level of confidence going into the game that she had never felt before. Welcome to Sauce Talk. This is Billy Hansen. And before today's episode, I want to speak a little bit about life in a quarantine. And I want to emphasize some of the positives that I've noticed from being quarantined and being forced to mostly stay in my apartment. Obviously, there are a lot of negatives and scary things that are happening right now during this time. And I am experiencing many of the fears that everyone else is experiencing and I also realize how lucky I am and how privileged I am to be in the situation that I'm in, to be employed and healthy so far and to have the leisure to record something like this. And I'm very grateful for the people who are out on the front lines, like the nurses and the healthcare workers and the first responders and people who are delivering packages and working in grocery stores. And yeah, I'm very grateful for those people right now. And I'm also equally ungrateful for the people who are who have the opportunity to <clears throat> do their part and to social distance and who are not taking this seriously or who are spreading misinformation one way or another. But I've also noticed some striking benefits of this new lifestyle. Things like, for instance, I noticed that this afternoon I sat on my couch and I read for 90 straight minutes. And about an hour into it, I thought to myself, when was the last time that I read a novel for an hour straight? And I couldn't remember the last time I'd done it. My my reading habits since becoming a young professional or even, you know, even worse as my time as a student athlete had always been trying to cram in 10 pages before, well, like yanking my eyes open before I fell asleep and then woke up early again the next morning to get back after it. Um, taking the advice from my episode with Barry Gillespie, we were talking and he recommended that I give myself a little bit of a break and allow myself to indulge in some of the pleasant opportunities that are arising from this time. So my girlfriend and I have been watching movies and TV shows and cooking together and spending longer periods of quality time together than I can remember. I've started playing online poker games with some of my old friends, my old teammates, and um, connecting with people who I haven't, who I've kept in kind of surface level contact with for years, but haven't actually laughed and joked and connected with in a long time. And I hope that I spoke to my mom on the phone right before recording this, and her and I were speaking about this too, and she's noticed some of the same things. Like she, in the middle of her workday, she's teaching from home now, trying to somehow um, teach second graders over Zoom, which is its own fiasco. But she said that you know, sometimes right in the middle of the day, she gets to just pick up her guitar and start playing. And there's part of me that thinks that the simplicity of this lifestyle, if we could maintain some of it without all of the fears and sickness and loss and economic disruption, if we could all remember what some of the upsides are to living a bit of a simpler life, it might benefit us if and when life returns to normal. My mom made a really good point. She said that it's, it's as if we've all now given ourselves permission to slow down a little bit and to smell the flowers and to do some of the things that we cram in in between all of our self-imposed obligations. And so I think we could all do with a little bit less FOMO and just 
hopefully keep some of the pace uh, that this new lifestyle has allowed for. I came across a quote that I think applies to what I'm talking about here. It's from my probably my favorite book, which is The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Aurelius was a Roman emperor and a Stoic philosopher, and he wrote down in his diary little affirmations and pieces of advice to himself with no intention of it ever being published. And then a couple thousand years later almost, um, it still seems so relevant today. So he writes, and you know, hopefully we can forgive him some of the antiquated gender language here, but he writes, For most of what we say and do is unnecessary, and if a man leaves them out, he will have more leisure and less trouble. So on every occasion, a man should ask himself, Is this one of the unnecessary things? Further, a man should leave off not only unnecessary acts, but unnecessary thoughts. For thus, sir, sir fucking fuck, how do you say that? Sir Fila. For thus, superfluous acts will not follow after. Let me read that again. Further, a man should leave off not only unnecessary acts, but unnecessary thoughts. For thus, superfluous acts will not follow after. And with that, let's get to the episode. This is going to be an interview with Steve Ledesma. Stevie is currently the first assistant coach at Caltech University in California. Before his time at Caltech, he was a coaching associate for the Los Angeles Lakers under Luke Walton. His role with the Lakers was focused on opponent scouting, strategic analytics, and on-court player development. Steve was also an, an accomplished point guard in his day. He was a two-year starter and team captain at Phoenix College in Arizona, and he helped lead the team to its first-ever Final Four appearance. Steve went on to play at Regis University and then became an assistant coach at Regis, which is where we met. In this conversation, we talk about simplicity and clarity in scouting reports, working with the Lakers under Luke Walton and his admiration for Luke, the purity of Division Three basketball and how he's come to really appreciate that level. We talk about mental training at the team level, and he asked me some questions about mental training and the things that I uh, look for in a good coach. We talk about holding players to a consistent standard, regardless of their rank on the team. We talk about finding positive incentives other than playing time to motivate players. And then I asked Steve what his advice would be for a player who's looking to commit to a program or a school that would be a good fit. So this was a wide-ranging conversation, which I really enjoyed. And here is Steve Ledesma. All right, I'm here with Steve Ledesma. Stevie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you having me here on, on Pogtail. So let's, there's plenty of places we could start here. I think it makes sense to jump into the middle of your coaching career. I will have introduced you and spoken a bit about your playing career before the start of this episode, but let's start with your time on the Lakers. So can you tell me a little bit about what your job description was on the Lakers and what your expectations were like before you took the job? Yeah, no problem. Um, so my job responsibilities were I was required to have a little bit of player development responsibility and well, a lot. So there's a lot of court work that I was doing. Um, I reported to the assistant video coordinator and the video coordinators. Um, so the video coordinator staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also would bridge a little bit of the analytics department. So and our video staff with the coaching staff mm-hmm. so 
what that entailed was, was definitely every single day assisting in the workouts and all of the drills and everything like that. Any encore before practice, uh, after practice. And then I was coding basketball games across the league. So a lot of our competitions games, uh, more upcoming games. So we had this schedule of whether we were five, four, three games, typically for us, our routine was five games out, just taking a look at, you know, there's so many games in the NBA. So every single night, everyone was assigned to a certain team or teams throughout um, that process as we prepared for each team five games out. Mm-hmm. And so I was coding basketball games and, and to kind of also um, – help you or help the listener better understand what we're doing is, is when we're coding a basketball game, you know, we have this program where every single possession we're, you know, we're, we're charting, you know, the play that they're running because we know their plays and we have a list of their plays, um, the results and a lot of other little minor details that help us get to our sorter. And what I mean by that, and also to kind of describe what that is, is, when we put a lot of that information and data into a sorter, um, we're able to extract a lot of those, again, the details so that we can get a good idea. Like, let's say we play Detroit, the, the Pistons in five games, and we've coded them the five games prior. When it gets time to our scout and when we're preparing for Detroit, we've created um, not only a tendency report, but um, also a frequency chart. So we know they've ran this play X amount of times and they've done this. X amount of times this is the result and so we kind of have a really good idea before we play them what they're doing and what they're obviously excelling at whether it's offensively mm. mainly offensively and then we're also going through some of the defensive stuff as well mm. so so given your experience with some of the very advanced analytics and strategies that are taking over the nba um, and then now we'll get to how you've transitioned into assistant coach at the division three level, but you've seen a wide spectrum of different strategies and you've spent a lot of time coding basketball games. You've watched a ton of film. There seems to be a kind of a dichotomy and you and I have spoken about this in our other conversations. There's a dichotomy between simplifying and adding complexity because you, there is so much new data and ideas being implemented all across basketball However, it's not as simple as playing a video game where you can have full control over how all of your players react to the strategy that you're, that you're trying to implement. So I want to hear a bit of your philosophy on this challenge that coaches and organizations and college programs have in they want to implement the best strategy possible to gain advantages on the court but they also need to understand that players have limited mental bandwidth while they're playing the game and they can't think about 10 things at once. So you want to keep it simple enough to where players can still feel mentally confident and comfortable while playing and their feet aren't stuck in mud because they're overthinking. So what do you think about that um, challenge as a coach? And do you tend to lean more towards simplicity or complexity? Wow, great question and so much to kind of dive into. But what I've noticed over the course of time is I think with players, it's as a coach, you know, you we, we put so much time and energy and effort into the preparation, into all of the little minor details. And I think 
what I've noticed over the course of time is that when you give them, we as coaches give them a little bit too much, 100% agree with what you said and, and that observation. And I think, I do think that when we overload cognitively overload our guys is when we start to see our players produce and perform not as well. Um, you know, yeah. and I, I do attribute that to just being overloaded with so much. So what we saw, and even this year, take this, this past year, my personal experience this last year was a really good um, exercise in, in that because I think as we simplified our, our preparation over the course of the year, in preparation I mean our scouts and how we prepared or even ball screen coverages, hmm. I think what we saw was the simpler it got, the easier and the better our guys ended up performing. Yeah, I've um, recently I had the thought, I'm just, I'm still working this out, but it, there seems to be in a lot of different practices in my life so far, there's so so much skill involved in being as concise and clear as possible. So whether you're trying to write, so I've been trying to write lately and I've been learning from my grandfather and trying to figure out how to write well and the best writers are able to say make their point really clearly with less sentences less words um so there's the kind of beauty and conciseness to the writing same thing with really good coders with you know as a data scientist i do coding and if the best scripts are written with fewer lines of code it's more computationally efficient and it's uh, cleaner to look at easier to to interpret and i've i noticed in my time as a coach um, at regis when i was putting together scouting reports my scouts early on in the year, you know, it could be, this was the first time that I had ever scouted for a team and I was putting together these reports. I, my tendency was to include everything because I didn't want to, I was fearful that we'd miss out on something important, some player tendency, some wrinkle they have, some out of bounds play. And so I would try to fit gobs of content into my scouting report. And then by the end of the scouting report, many of the players eyes were wandering all over the room they were getting restless and i remember that myself as a player too there's a big difference between a really clean concise 15 minute scout and an hour long scout that was just kind of like a a fire hose of information so it seems like in a lot of these different things and i think coaching is no exception or uh, scouting teams is no is no exception the ability to be clear concise and communicate effectively without overwhelming players is a really, really important skill. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to expand a little bit on what you, you pointed out that was really, really crucial and and 100% important is, is it's very common for a coach, from my perspective and from my experience, that coaches, their biggest fear is not covering everything, right? You yeah. want to be as, you want to cover as much as you can. And, and because the fear, sometimes fear is what drives some decisions that are made right the fear is is that when it comes to the game time if they expose one of the things that we as coaches did not point out then Mm -hmm. it relates then it comes back to us and then we feel like okay well we didn't we didn't that's on us right we Mm -hmm. didn't put them in the best position possible to succeed right yeah um but i do think that there's importance there as a coach to also understand that you know again just like you pointed out great example that if you do so much and you're so it's the, the, the amount of content and stuff that we're giving them is so overwhelming that yeah guess what they're still going to miss that small point that you covered but they're also going to miss the main points that you covered because it was just too much yeah right and you've essentially lost them yeah so and you know basketball is such a fast moving game 
And there's a lot of decisions that are, that are, that need to be made in a quick, a short period of time. So, you know, I, I think as coaches, it's, it's again, getting back to balance and having that balance. Okay. Like what are, you know, when you are putting together the scouting report, this is why I'm really big on as a staff, just being as precise and yes, it's a skill, but I think using your staff to the best of their abilities allows you to trim. Like when you go through a rehearsal of what you're about to pre- present to the team, it's up to the staff prior to and creating an environment, creating an environment that says, okay, before we even give our presentations and whoever scout this is, or if it's a staff scout, let's all rehearse amongst one another. And then we can help trim some of the stuff that we might think is not necessary so that we can get to the main points. Right. Mm. And that just allows, that is just like you said, that's a skill, that's a craft. But I do think as a, as a staff, that's where good, if you look at the makeup of like a good team or a good staff, good staffs do that. Mm. Right. And that's, that's, that's part of, you know, helping one another get to that place because that skill set it's tough enough for any of us, one of us to, to, to continuously work on that craft and get better at it. You know, as coaches, as you've seen, Billy, in your time, you know, you get better at it over time, but you know, the fact that you recognize that at an early point in your, in your coaching career is critical. I think, um, Mm. yeah. And I think it's, it's tough. It's tough to have that balance. Yeah. I love what you said about how, not only will they miss the small little wrinkles you're trying to give them, but if you're not careful, they'll miss the big ones, the ones they really need. Um, and that, you know, dealing with the fear of, you know, the perfectionism that we all go through um, and trying to overload information is something that coaches have to work through. And I certainly, had I continued on coaching or if I get back into it in the future, it's something that I'll continue to work on. So um, after your time with the Lakers, well, actually, hold on, I want to stop before I move away from the Lakers. You told me a story once about Luke Walton that had to do with um, servant leadership, which is something that you feel strongly about. So you obviously really admired Luke Walton a lot. Can you set up that story with a description of your injury and then how that one moment um, kind of exemplified some of what you admire about Luke Walton? Yes, absolutely. No problem. Um, Before I even give the example and start to kind of paint that picture, I think it's important to recognize that every coach certainly – has its flaws not not there's not one coach in this world that's able to check every single box yeah as their strengths right we all have strengths and weaknesses and but i would say one thing that i really admired about coach walton is just again his servant leadership i think he i think that that's a a big big strength and requirement um and i say a requirement because i think it's important for coaches to to have a certain level of compassion um and understanding and so one of the reasons, the main reasons, this is the, the story that I try to tell a lot of people when they ask me about my time, not only with the Lakers, but with Coach Walton, you know, hey, Steve, can you can you share one of the stories that, that kind of spoke to just his character and personality? Mm. I gave him the example of, so middle of the year of the season or towards middle to end of the season in March, I, uh, I tore, uh, ruptured my Achilles tendon. And so my recovery required me to be in a boot and crutches however i was still fulfilling my responsibilities and still doing what my normal duties were and so on game days um after games or post game there is a team meal in our locker room typically the way that it works is they the players eat first and then the coaching staff and then 
us, which is still part of the coaching staff, but the lower level coaching staff. But mm-hmm. typically there's a little bit of some carryover between different, you know, the different groups. And so at that time when I'm in my boot and with crutches, you know, I come in to eat and with my peers who are in the same position as me. And, uh, and then there's coach Walton and his wife. And I think his brother was in town and a friend. And then, so there's a large group of people still eating. And so, um, I'm waiting in line for food to, to serve myself a plate. However, it's really, really challenging to, to do that when you have crutches and a boot on. And so my peers went ahead and fed themselves, not trying to make, by the way, I'm not trying to, you know, put my, yeah, fuck, my peers on blast. Fuck those or, guys, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. But you know, of course, like they're feeding themselves, they're putting food on their plates. And they sat down. I'm struggling to even put one single thing, even hold the plate. Coach Walton recognizes that, and he stands up, and he's like, without really making a big deal and announcing it to the entire room, he just grabs my plate, and he's like, hey, what do you what do you want? I got you. I'll, just tell me what you want. And as soon as that happened, and some of the people became aware in the room, like everyone started to stand up and like, okay, like they're going to help me now. Mm. Um, however, what I saw – just by those or that and his actions, again, I mentioned one thing that was important. He didn't stand up and make, make, make sure the room knew that he was doing it. Number one, which I really, really appreciated. Number two, what I saw there was a coach with a great sense of humility and compassion. And, you know, who am I to have a coach, an NBA coach serve me? Nor was I even, I was kind of like, shoot, I hope he doesn't recognize that I'm struggling over here because I didn't want him to do that. However, it was funny that when it happened, it just showed me that, again, the, the level of humility and compassion that this individual had. And I just had so much respect for him. And it just showed, you know, honestly, even through the course of the entire year, there was just little things that he would do that showed that he was a servant leader. He, he was never better than the next person. He would always do the most he could, he could to, to show that. And it wasn't even like he was trying to, to prove that he was that way. It just came natural for him. And it's just his personality. And in that exact experience, I've, I felt like I just had that moment where it was like, wow, this is special. And not only is this special, but how many other NBA coaches would do this? Cause typically in those type of environments, everyone is serving him. Everyone is doing everything they can to, to make sure he's okay his assistants, the closest assistants to him. But it was just, it was, it was really, really awesome to see kind of the looks on everyone's faces, mine included. And just kind of, again, it's just a snapshot into just the type of individual that he is and when, why I have so much respect for him. Yeah. It speaks to how, and you know, I've played for so many coaches throughout my life and I've definitely felt that some of them had that mentality where they were consciously putting themselves on the player's level and showing that they were truly wanted the best for the players. And then I've also been on programs where it felt like it was almost like coach versus player. It was especially on teams that are struggling. It's like the coach is blaming the players for the losses. The players are blaming the coach. And it's really not something that you can fake. You can say that you are quote unquote a servant leader, but it really gets shown with your actions throughout the year. So doing little things like that, um, or, you know, you can even see it on in the college level, like road trips, if the coach is willing to sacrifice some comfort to make room for 
you know, one of the bigger players to have more leg room. I've, I've noticed good coaches doing that too. It's just the little things that can go a long way in the player's psyches and building that camaraderie within a team. So yeah, that's, um, it's great that you had such a positive experience with coach Walton. And I, I always thought that was an interesting story. So you transition out of the Lakers and you get a assistant coaching job at Caltech in California. Um, and you've spent now one year at Caltech and from everything you've explained to me, it seemed like it was a really special season. Can you, um, tell me a bit about the season and why it was so special? Yeah. Uh, wow. I mean, it was honestly, Bill, it was, it was an amazing experience. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons. I'll do the best I can to be concise, but, um, yeah, I think for me kind of going into that environment, and as far as the expectations that I had, I didn't know, I didn't really have any expectations other than I knew it was going to be a new challenge and, and different level for me. Um, mm-hmm. Having been at previously at the highest level possible, it felt pure. Mm. And what I mean by that is it really felt like there was an opportunity to have an impact from day one. Mm. And so I understood maybe early on, but I might have also underestimated how difficult their situation is specifically at Caltech and there meaning the player situation, mm. given that it's such a high academic school. Um, mm. One of the best academic schools you could argue in, in the world. Is it lower acceptance rates than MIT? Is that right? Correct. Yes. There's less students. So there's, you know, it's, it's harder to get into because of the lower acceptance rate mm. than MIT. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I understood the great academic challenge, but as the year went on, I think I started to really, truly get an idea of what their daily life, what lives were like, you know, and the amount of hours they put into the academic side Mm. as well as the athletic side. And so what I found was that these guys were true. They embodied what a student athlete is. Mm. They truly embody what a student athlete is. And so I think it was, it was really rewarding because, you know, there was a lot of things that went on this year, Billy, that were, you know, that there were certainly, you know, coaches, we like to talk about some of the adversity and challenges that are coming and, or that have transpired and how to overcome adversity. But this team really saw a lot of adversity throughout the year. And to sum it all up, I mean, we, we had the winningest record in school history, or at least conference record in, in school history. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we checked off a lot of like historic monuments and milestones for the program this year, but we still missed our conference playoffs by one game. Um, and when it came down to when we found out, we still had three games left in the season. Mm-hmm. Now, from my experience, just past experiences and some, some assumptions that I've made, typically it's very difficult for a team to stay engaged when there's three games left in the season and they know, okay, we're out of the playoff race. Yeah, that can be really deflating. You can kind of get some mental checkout. It's like, uh, we missed the playoffs, three games left. The minds can start drifting towards next season or the off season or spring break or anything else, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, not to mention their academic challenges is starting to get closer to, you know, midterms and, right. and testing. And so, but what I saw, and this is with some of the things, one of the most, one of the, one of the things I was most proud of throughout the year was our level of engagement as the year went on, you know, I could just see that we, as the year went on and as the challenges got harder and harder and the obstacles became bigger and bigger, 
and we started getting guys injured and, and hurt and sick. You know, our last three games, we were missing one of our starters. Hmm. Um, another one of our starters, his tooth went through his lip and had stitches. So anyhow, make a long story short, our last three games, knowing that we weren't going to make the playoffs, we were as engaged as we ever were throughout the entire year as a staff and as a, as a, as a team. Hmm. And what I saw was just a, a, just a passion for wanting to perform and succeed at a high level that, you know, I think we knew that we, even though we weren't going to make the playoffs, we knew that we were still chasing this, you know, it was about pride and yes, it was about still chasing something right. And leaving a legacy. And so make a long story short, we won our last three games in a row. Um, every game was down to the wire and it came down to that critical two minute stretch our last game we won on a buzzer beater and to see the faces and to see the level of emotion that a lot of players, we sent our seniors off the right way, but to see our players in the locker room and to have that, obviously, you know what I'm saying, Bill, you've been in a locker room, but after that last game, the emotion and the level of gratitude that every individual showed was just truly special. Hmm. Um, And that's kind of the reason why, like as a coach, like for me, you know, when I think about my why, that moment is a moment that again makes me feel like this is why I'm doing this. This yeah. is exactly the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm at this level. This is why I'm here. This is why I do this. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was special. It was truly special. Yeah. That's amazing, man. And I, I, um, I think it is a good example of a point that I've come to appreciate later, you know, as my athletic career was winding down and then as a coach, and now I'm thinking, and writing and speaking about these things is it's really easy to, you can always look up the ladder and find, you can, you know, seem to find more meaning or value in, because there's always teams that are in a higher division than you. There's always players that are better than you. There's, you know, only one team can win a championship in every conference and every league. So it's very easy to, to look at what you, you have or what you've accomplished and think, ah, oh, it could be better in this way or this way, or this way, right? But for every given team, there's its own story. And so even for a team at the Division Three level um, who didn't make the playoffs, as an outside observer, you might think, oh, you know, it's not that special of a season. But for all of the players in that locker room who got to, you know, like you said, accomplish a the most conference wins in school history and then finish the season on a buzzer-beating win – that is its own special moment. And like, yeah, like you said, it doesn't really get any better than that. It wouldn't, it's not like, um, it's, it, I think it's easy to miss how profound and important every season can be. And this could get me off into a tangent, but I'll just briefly mention that I think that's why the profession of coaching is so valuable in our culture because a good coach or a good coaching staff can help cultivate that for players um and as you know as a player and and i know you've experienced a lot of adversity as a player and a lot of success um good back locker rooms bad locker rooms playing in a a, you know not even being in a powerhouse but just playing on a on a team that has some of those characteristics that you mentioned where when you get eliminated from the playoffs people aren't looking ahead and everyone's engaged and you're enjoying playing in big close games that's really all you can ask for in a season so I think it's really cool that you got to have that season this year and it'll be interesting to see how um, Caltech builds on it because 
it can only it could take a season like that. A season like that can push a program into a positive momentum where players now know how to win. They now feel like they know how to close out close games. And then pretty soon the program can go from being a team that perennially misses the playoffs to a team that's a real contender. So, well, and I can take it one step further, Bill, because, you know, it's funny. I just had, uh, I just had a, a meeting with uh, end of the year, just recapping a lot of things, maybe talking about areas for growth for the both of us, but I had a, a, an opportunity to meet with our, you know, our staff had an opportunity to meet with one of our captains who will be a returner next year. And, and mm-hmm. you know, he shared with us some, some personal things that were, you know, got a little emotional, but also kind of talked and spoke to a little bit about what you're referring to. And it, it was just really awesome to kind of hear him not only recap, but also reflect on, you know, how special this year was and why. And, and what he talked about, which was interesting, was that, you know, for this program that at Caltech it hadn't had much winning tradition in history, right, over its entire basketball history right like the program's history and so during his time being a junior this year or having been a junior this year he had he had experienced some challenging times and obstacles in his first few years although they you know yeah the level of engagement was still good and they were still competing you know he mentioned one thing this year that that or one how he felt this year that really resonated with me and that was his confidence and what he meant by that was that yeah he could not just like in game but he talked about when we went on our first three game stretch three game winning streak and we were preparing for a crosstown rival a team who had, has won the conference numerous times one of the best teams in the conference history and they were pretty good this year he was he talked about the level of confidence going into the game that he had never felt before mm. and he said i know that my teammates felt the same way and regardless of how, you know, this year where we finished, what's going to help us move the needle even moving forward in the next few years is that feeling. Mm-hmm. Knowing what that feeling is like. Knowing going into a game that you are you're prepared and confident that, you know, you're capable of, of, of not only competing, but you're, we are capable of and we're supposed to win those games. Um, yeah. And that's – sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that was that on that topic of one of your captains talking about increased confidence throughout the year. I know that we spoke throughout the season and you were implementing some mental training into um, your preparation as a team. And you said some of the players were interested in mental training themselves. So how... Why did you decide to implement mental training? What did it look like and what kind of impact do you think it made? So why we, why we did that was honestly, I think that we understood the importance as a staff um, as well as I should mention that our head coach has a background in sports or just uh, he's, uh, I, I would say sports psychology, but um, he knows and understands the importance of, of the mental training. However, in that moment, our why was kind of, we hit a tough patch throughout the year and it felt a little bit, I don't want to sound like I'm again being negative, but it just sounded like, or it just felt like it was a little bit reactive, Mm. right? We kind of were, we're hitting a patch a rough stretch. So then it was like, okay, we need to prioritize that because it looks like there are certain individuals that are struggling mentally 
Um, and that's, a, you know, again, whether it's individually, collectively. Um, but what it looked like was we, one day a week, we implemented a one hour mental workshop where it initially started out as just kind of the talking about some of the self-efficacy things and maybe just visualizing and understanding the self, maybe taking a step back and reflecting and thinking about maybe being third person mm. right? and looking at yourself and what does that look like and being able to communicate and describe some of the, the positive things. Like for example, as a player, I, I always remember this, the first, one of the first workshops that we did, we talked about, you know, what does it look like to be in the zone? We talked about what is the zone, if you will, and being mm. in the zone. You hear a player talk about like they were in the zone, maybe offensively, right? Yeah. And then so we had our guys just one by one describe and try to do the best they could to like paint the picture of what that looked like, right? And maybe some of the emotions that it evoked or yeah. So it started with that and then maybe some got into like topics about self efficacy and maybe um, approach and, and so, but we only had half of a season to, to really work on it. And when we hit the best stretch of our season, we really turned it around was when we started implementing hmm. the, uh, a mental workshop. However, now I want to kind of turn it back around to you because I know that you talked about it a little bit on one of your previous podcasts, but what do you suggest? I know that you heard me say that it felt a little bit more reactive, but I personally feel like it kind of it would it would have more significance if it was prioritized as just throughout the year and, and more proactive as opposed to reactive. Which can you talk a little bit more about that and how coaches could do that? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's part of kind of the crusade that I'm on is to try to encourage coaches and athletes to implement mental training into their programs and for me specifically i'm working to teach athletes meditation and visualization and just speaking with them a little bit about how to carry that with them into the court and into their training and stuff and so yeah i think and i'm not you know i don't pretend that it's going to fix everything and i know and i've as a coach i've experienced just the the bottomless, I think I spoke about this in my last podcast, but there are like a episode five when I talked about mental training in sports, but I, there's so much that a coach can go over. There's never an end to the to-do list of, okay, we've got to work on ball screens. We have to get better at D-trans. We have to implement this new play because our best player is not getting enough looks. It just, it never ends. And so it can be very easy to sacrifice something that's a little bit less um, tangible uh, measurable, something like a meditation practice or a visualization se session or a body scan or anything that you think could help your team. But I think there's more and more evidence suggesting that the little bit of time that you could spend with mental training can boost everything else you're doing as a team. And so I like what you said about how being proactive rather than reactive. So if you do believe in it, if you've read the science and you've either experienced it personally or seen it work for a team, it might be wise to just put it in the schedule and make it a non-negotiable commitment because until it's it becomes that, you know, or once it becomes a non-negotiable commitment, you will see that um, exponential gain start to take place, that accelerated growth where 
you know, the, the players are really learning how to meditate and they're taking it with them to the court. And then if you've been doing it all season long, whether or not things are going good or bad, then by the end of the year, you will see more resilient, more mentally strong players in times of adversity. And you'll see happier players with more buy-in because they, their minds will be more present, more centered, more calm. Um, so yeah, if I were a coach, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I would, I know that it's easier said than done, but I would try to, I mean, I definitely would make some form of mental training, um, a non-negotiable commitment. And I think that, um, it's becoming increasingly important in the modern era of distraction and trying to get young men or women to focus and make sacrifices over the long haul can be difficult with all the different forms of entertainment and distraction that are um, omnipresent in our culture. So that was a long-winded answer to your question. Hopefully it, it answered it. No, hundred percent. I kind of want to ask you one more question. And, mm. you know, I know that from personally speaking, our head coach who has a background with it, or in it, um, in sports psych, what, what kind of recommendations and what could you offer to a staff or maybe a, a coach that's out there that's listening that while may do some meditation in his or her life or may understand the importance of it, but doesn't really know how to integrate it, you mm -hmm. know, and lead it. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for a coach like that? Yeah. So I'm, that's something that I'm working on. I'd love to have something that I could just hand to a coach and say, okay, this is your program to work on. Um, I think if it was a coach was asking me that right now to implement that in their program right now, I would, if they have a meditation background and they feel comfortable leading it, or if someone on the staff does, I would have that be the priority because then it feels a little bit more intimate and you're actually learning it from a human being. I think that's important. If not, if you don't feel comfortable leading some kind of guided meditation visualization, then I would just have this. This would be my kind of um, bare minimum of what would be really effective is before once a day before either practice or a film session or a weight session, you just have the team sit together and track their breath. And there are plenty of guided meditations online. You could download the Headspace for Athletes app and pay for it and then play it for the whole team. I think it's something like you know, $15 a month or something, um, which is a, a great investment. Um, or you can f look at the resources posted on my website, which is billyhanson.net. And there are resources where you can find guided meditations to play for the team. So anyway, I would just say taking the time to have athletes train their mind once a day. And by training my, their mind, I mean paying attention clearly to experience or to your object of awareness without trying to change it and allowing the mind to settle, allowing all of the external stresses and pressures melt away like girlfriend or boyfriend problems, um, homework, academic issues, which seems especially pertinent at your school, um, family problems, allowing the inevitable stresses of life to melt before trying to teach, which is what you're doing as a coach is teach young men and women, the whatever you're trying to teach that day, whether it's strategy or skill development or anything else, I think that coaches would be surprised to see how much more effective their practices and film sessions and weight sessions are if you're 
beginning those th- those things with a little bit of mental work, whether it be five or ten minutes of just sitting quietly and practicing some simple meditation. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I mean, it, I think I really appreciate you. I think it got back to the question that I'm asking or like, what are some of the resources and definitely yeah. answered, you know, definitely answered the question. I think that's what some coaches may struggle with as it applies to just integrating right. a, it, it a might system be, like that. You might want to integrate it, but feel kind of helpless. So Correct. yeah, eventually Correct. I will, I will hopefully have a program that I can hand to coaches. Um, but for now, I think you can check my website for the guided meditations that are posted and play those. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is kind of speaking towards the need for um, resources for mental training and sports. But um, I think it's a really important thing. Okay, last question I've been thinking about, Bill. Um, having been a player, both on on the player side and then you know spent a short period of time as a coach, what are your top three qualities um, that a coach must possess in order to be successful? Good question. So, um, from the player's perspective, let, I'll put myself in the uh, as being a player. What what qualities I most appreciated? Um, let's see. First, I'm going to go with strength and comp- competence. So, just the confidence. And the ability to back up that confidence, so like a you know not manufactured confidence, but a pure sense of confidence that the head coach is making firm decisions and taking us in the right direction, and on, layered on top of that is setting a firm standard that if we live up to it, we will be in a position to be successful. And so I say that because there is a lot of, you can really relax as a player when you know that your head coach, when you trust that your head coach is putting you in a position to be successful, that they're coming up with a good game plan, that they're running efficient and well thought out practices. Because I've been in situations where there isn't that level of trust and respect. um, And you can feel as a player like, okay, I want to have a good season, but I don't know if we're actually doing enough to get there. So if, if the coach is firm and confident and competent, um, it, you can kind of relax in a player and say, okay, these are the standards that are set before me. Coach said to get this many shots up on this day. We're going to work out of this time. And my only responsibility is to do my job, which is to meet the, the high standard that's being set. And I know that if I do the things that I'm being asked, that I will be appreciated for it and then we'll be in a, position, in a, be in a situation where we can be successful collectively. So that was kind of a long uh, elaboration for the first one, but then second, I'd say, and maybe I mean I, this may they pro- this probably should have been first, but just knowing that the coach cares about you as on a personal level, um, because you know you're seeing more and more data coming out. There was actually a really uh, kind of harrowing recap or investigation from the show Real Sports on HBO of the. They, they ran an analysis and they compared abuse across industries and they found that college athletics had the highest rate of abuse um, across any, even when comparing it to any industry in business or academics or any of that. So um, having a good coach who has high moral standards and will not lose their cool and be 
needlessly cruel when times get tough is another thing that I would really look for in a coach. Um, and it's tough because I don't, I think that some of that data might be a bit skewed because I do think that, um, we shouldn't overreact to what we see from coaches and label things that are just tough coaching as abusive. Like I remember, um, watching the NCAA tournament a couple years ago and seeing that viral, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a viral video of Tom Izzo screaming at one of his players when, as they came off the court, you know, really getting in his face. And to any of us, to any of us who have, you know, know what it takes to win a basketball game, we, you know, it was probably a little bit too much, but it wasn't totally out of off the pale. It wasn't like some Bob Knight shit throwing chairs at players or something. It was just some really tough coaching in the middle of a tough moment from a coach who has proven to be totally successful, overachieving coach for so many years. So we have to be careful if we label stuff like that as abuse or as beyond the pale, then we might lose credibility when there's the real abuse that's going on in a lot across the country where we hear horror stories of players hitting players or any of that. So just knowing that the coach is a really good person, like has high moral standards and cares about you as much or more than even winning basketball games would be another thing. And then, um, yeah, I think third, I probably have to go with flexibility. I really appreciate coaches who take feedback and this might even come more from my experience as a coach, like a coach who is confident, but also not stubborn enough to reject helpful, um, suggestions. Like I, I appreciate coaches who can hear, a suggestion from a player that might be even antithetical to what they're trying to implement and they will consider it fairly and not just shut it down because they are threatened by some kind of insubordination or something just so just a player that has enough of that what I called what I said first of like a pure confidence where they just want to get to the truth and they want to put the team in the best situation that they can to be successful and they don't have so much ego in the way that they will reject suggestions from assistant coaches or players that might help us get there so i may be leaving something out but did that answer your question yeah no thorough too so i really appreciate it what do you think about the tom Izzo uh thing was that was i no i hundred no you're on you're 100 like if the player knows it's just tom Izzo kind of gets a little bit of leeway because he does he has shown and players have really come out to his defense and said like look like we know how much he loves us so in those moments all you're seeing is a snapshot of him just losing his shit on a guy but i think they love him yeah and they know that it's like he he can coach him hard because he probably loves him even harder i don't know for sure but yeah i agree though yeah all of the the testimony from so many players year after year who say they love coach Izzo and that he respects you and loves you that we should listen to that when you were evaluating his character. I love what you said, rather than a 10 second clip of him screaming at a player as he walks off the court. So, so let me, um, if, let me flip it around back to you. So, um, I want to talk about a couple of your principles that you've, you're really committed to and all of our conversations about basketball and leadership and coaching, everything you seem to, there are a couple of things that are really important to you that you, you emphasize, Um, so let's start with the first one, which is holding your best players to a high standard and as much as possible, not having separate sets of standards for different players based on their 
status within the hierarchy of a team. So wh- why is that important? Why is it important to keep a consistent set of standards for all players on the team, regardless regardless of status? I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is just accountability. Mm. Um, I think it's important for that individual to understand that regardless of his or her talents, um, he or she is 100% accountable, which is some of the things that most coaches stress, right? Like I don't think there's, there are any coaches really out there, the successful ones that don't preach, you know, accountability, but that just shows by actions, Mm. right? That, that, okay. I know that I know the culture or at least the coaching staff has said that, you know, we hold our players accountable, but, Here's one instance where the, the one of the best players on the team is not doing what he or she spo- should be doing, right? Yeah. Um, or can have a little bit of leeway because he or she is the best player. But no, the, the teammates, you know, it's such a that the team dynamics are so important. And I think again, it gets back to accountability and and the players respect coaches that are willing to coach the best player hard. However, I'm not saying that it, that for coaches, it isn't challenging because it it's so challenging and difficult. The other thing, too, is for me personally speaking, uh, as a coach, I, I am always looking at, you know, you can't coach an entire team exactly the same necessarily all the time. And what I mean by that is every individual is challenged and motivated differently. Yeah. Um, so as a, as a coach, I'm always trying to figure out how is this individual motivated? How is this individual motivated? And maybe one individual isn't motivated in a way that the other is like, for example, criticism or yelling, right. Or tough, tough criticism um, or constructive criticism. However, when it comes to something like that, I think it's important for coaches to recognize, okay, like while that is important in figuring out your individuals, there are some non-negotiables as it relates to the entire team. And, and so again, if I'm preaching accountability, and the importance of accountability here is the the one exact example of how I'm showing my guys that this is 100% accountability. Sorry, it's long-winded, but I think No, I think that's spot on and you can see you hear about some of the horrors of what happens when this isn't a standard on a in a program and um one of my friends who played uh, Jake Skarmanach who I'll have on at some point, but he spoke about his time at his JC. So he left, he was a football star in high school and then he played JC football in Cal in uh, Arizona. And he said that he was a receiver and he showed up every day, worked as hard as he could, you know, was puking during daily doubles was, you know, blocking during drills. He was playing as hard as he could, but there were players on the team who should have been playing high level, you know, high major division one football but they just didn't have the grades to to get there. So they had bounced back to JCs. And these are receivers who were running just ridiculous 40 times and they were like super athletic. And he said that they, and this is, I don't know if he was exaggerating. I, I, I don't think he was, but he said that they could literally just kind of like show up um, and say that their hamstring was a little tight. So they just show up in street clothes and stand on the sideline and watch practice all week after having probably smoked a lot of weed and they'd still get to start in the games and they'd still put up big numbers. And so I don't know if it's especially tough at the JC level, but you hear my friend Jake, who um, was, it was hard for him to keep showing up and working hard every day. And a lot of the team stopped. There was a lot of this kind of like, 
oh, these are one of the guys who get to play and I'm just kind of a, a pawn for them. So I'm, you know, why would I show up and work my ass off if I'm not, if I'm just, if I'm not going to be rewarded for it, right? Um, so well, I don't know if you want to pick up on anything of that, on that. Yeah, no, we had an incident this year where, you know, I will be 100% honest, our environment and the environment that we had and the culture that we had amongst our guys and the team that we had was, we have a lot of hardworking players on our team mm-hmm. and our, our captains are hard workers, but there was a point in time, I think it's only natural and it's only human nature for guys to relax when the environment allows them to relax, mm-hmm. right? Guys are girls. And so I think we kind of, our staff, maybe in the past, again, I'm not, I'm not speaking badly about them, but I think they had gotten used to in the past once we got into a rhythm and they were the starters, they knew that they could have a little bit of leeway and, and mm. they could start taking reps off and they can do these things. And I think what I, when we had that, that moment in time, uh, that's where my personality kind of came through. And I remember stopping practice. I might've even yelled, which I don't like to do t- too, too much, but I think I, I, challenged all those guys individually and collectively in front of the entire team because i said that you know they were essentially lacking respect for their teammates and what i mean by meant by that was that a lot of the guys that showed up every single day and that were not getting the playing time that they were necessarily getting and but yet they were doing everything that was asked of them it's important for the teammates or those those players to recognize like oh wow like i am kind of in a way being essentially a bad teammate and lacking a little bit of respect and shitting on some of these guys because of my lack of my lack of of effort if you will in those those moments in time and so and the other thing too was important for those other guys to be recognized sometimes some of those other guys all they need is just recognition yeah um you know they're struggling just like any any one of us may be and they're putting in the effort so you know, that's, that's also a way to recognize the hard work of those individuals. Cause every team has that, you know, for mm-hmm. the most part, every team has that. Yeah. And may have that dynamic. So, yeah. And the, the second principle, which you already just started touching on that you seem to emphasize a lot is making sure that things like effort, attitude, and consistency are explicitly rewarded. Um, and so it can be easy for in a game that tracks statistics and ranks players based on their output, it can be easy to only look at the box scores or the playing time and then have that be the only carrot that leads a player towards positive behavior, right? The only incentive. But if a coach is taking time to explicitly acknowledge things like effort, attitude, and consistency and making that something to be, you know, giving some social validation to players who are doing that, it can go a long way in team culture development um, because I've also been on teams where that stuff was not necessarily rewarded and it is a disincentive to keep doing it, especially if you're in a situation where you're behind another great player and you're not getting the playing time you want. It could be easy for the bottom you know, 30% of your lineup or your team to shut down in some ways and that really can cause some kind of rot within the team. So I don't know if you want to speak any more about that. Yeah, no, I thought I thought you did a good job of elaborating a, a, a few critical key elements to kind of again team dynamics and and the it's we all as coaches evaluate and figure out how we demonstrate 
what we value, right? Like, and you said, you know, whether we value effort, consistency, a lot of those coaches, a lot of us coaches, I think tend to, to think about those things, but sometimes it doesn't always get reinforced by playing time, you know? Yeah. So, and it, it's not going to always be perfect. I think some environments they, they challenge themselves to try to be in a, in a way like that. And I think, you know, that's always a challenge for us. I know that was a challenge for us this year as well. Cause we had so many guys on the team, but you know, even when it can't be reinforced, whether it's playing time, I think it's very, very important in a social setting that guys are recognized and, and, and great point that you brought up. Um, cause for us, I mean, it, it, that was in, in entirely critical and, and it kept a lot of those guys that were not seeing playing time, not because they weren't working hard or they weren't consistent and the effort wasn't there. Just, there was lack, there just wasn't enough minutes. And I know that that sounds may sound, um, difficult or that it goes against some of the things that, you know, some of no, us I mean, practically speaking, you can't play everyone and you have to give yourself the best chance to win too, you know, otherwise, yeah, you know, that would be the, yeah. So there, there are trade-offs you have to make, but yeah, I think I love what you said about rewarding it in other ways and that even it can be enough just to know that you're appreciated and know that you're doing the right things. Even if you're not getting all the playing time you want, just a, a little tip of the cat from the coach can go a long way for a player who's showing up and doing all the right things. Well, and that's, you know, we've talked about this billion in, in, in some of the conversations that we've had. And, and, you know, as a coach, you should be, you should be challenging yourself to figure out how to, how to accomplish a lot of these things. Right. And, and have the awareness and emotional intelligence to figure out, okay, is this person, where's he at? Where's he or she at with, with what's going on and, and kind of checking in. And I think some coaches may be great at it in a private setting, right? Like in having the one-on-one -on -one meetings and, and mm -hmm. reinforcing or, or showing and appreciating kind of what they bring to the table. And, and, and so, but in a social setting with everyone around, it's just a little bit different environment. And I think that sometimes coaches, we forget that, right. We forget yeah. that recognizing individuals in their around amongst their, their peers and around everyone is, is almost as critical, if not more critical and, and important than, than doing it in a private setting. Mm. You know, I've, I've had, I've had players come up to me and tell me things and, and maybe not necessarily come up to me, but we have meetings, scheduled meetings in private settings and we can talk about a lot. But when there's some things that are said in front of the entire team that are necessary and important, it's just, it just evokes a different type of emotion. Yeah. Um, so yeah. anything, yeah. Anyhow. No, that's great. Um, one more question I had for you is let's pretend that you have, a son or daughter who's 18 years old and is just leaving their senior year of high school and they're about to play college sports and they're not a, um, they're not getting recruited by the Dukes and the, you know, North Carolinas of the world. They're in the thick of college recruitment. They might be deciding which level to play at, where to play at, and they have some recruiting options, but they aren't a highly recruited player. What kind of, things are you going to help them try to prioritize in finding a good fit so what what kind of things are at the top of your list for priorities in the school that your son or daughter goes to oh wow um that is a great question and also um there's a lot so i'll try to do the best i can to be concise but i think when it when it comes down to just the the, the environment it's finding a place school 
you know, I think that every level is different, right? But I think when it comes down to it, someone once gave me this advice, unless you're going to be a professional basketball player or a professional athlete in that sport, I think it's really important to pick a place that you could see yourself being a student athlete or just a student, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to always be perfect, but, um, and I don't think that that's, I'm not going to pri- I'm not going to prioritize it as the first thing. Mm. It's just one of the things that is a priority is finding a place that you could see yourself in an environment that you can see yourself being in. Um, if things do not work out athletically, so, so, you're However, saying, so you're saying just to be clear, picking a school that you would go to, even if you weren't an athlete, something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's challenging. I think that, as I'm no, saying, I like, that, I, I know no, that. I like that. I, I think, uh, yeah, again, it won't be perfect, but if you're going somewhere that you would like, like, yeah, I think that's, that might be a really good mental exercise that I hadn't thought about. It's like, okay, if you were going to go to this school and not play, what would your reaction be? And if it's discussed, yep. if it's discussed, that's probably a kind of a red flag. Right. A hundred percent. Like I, the only reason why I bring that up is just because, you know, I've gone through it myself where I was in a challenging, um, environment circumstances where I didn't really want to be at that place once everything kind of mm. didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go from an athletic standpoint. And so, you know, I knew I was going to transfer and there's always that option of transferring. It's just, if you can just try to be in a place that you're not going to be hundred percent miserable and, and it, your well being will be intact and fine. Like for example, you know, I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm shitting on Wyoming, but if you went to a place that was in the middle of nowhere that you knew that you don't want to be in a place in the middle of nowhere, yeah. you know, that can be challenging, right? For a young adult. That's yeah. 18, 19 years old. And I, th- sorry to keep interjecting, but I think, I think people probably put too much, if I'm not mistaken, people probably put too much weight into that. Oh, you can always transfer because yes, you can always transfer and things will probably work out to some extent, but there were quite a few horror stories of my teammates at Regis who had transferred between multiple schools. Let's say Regis was their third school. And I know it's probably exaggerated at Regis because it's a private Jesuit school, but there were some significant chunk of credits that they had either paid for or, you know, gone to class over the last few years that weren't going to count. And a lot of them had to spend an extra year, year and a half trying to graduate after they had finished four years of school. So going to, you know, you can't be perfect. You're not clairvoyant. You don't know exactly how it's going to be, but trying to find a fit that is either, you know, JC to four year or a four year school that you're going to enjoy can really be important so you're not losing a bunch of um time and credits so sorry to derail you but keep no 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 no. that that happened to me actually billy so Mm -hmm. but fortunately enough i was playing for a coach who understood the value of education and allowed me to they still paid for my last few credits shout out porter if you're listening shout out big big coach p um go ahead sorry yeah no so that's why great point which is what i was alluding to you know again the 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 transferring to multiple different, you know, multiple places can, can be challenging academically. And so you just want to make sure that you protect yourself in that way. And, but, uh, I know it's a little extreme and, and I'm talking about extreme cases and also guys or, or girls that, you know, just your well being is important. So finding yeah. a place that, that will allow you to still be happy or find some middle ground of, of trying to be happy and, and, and it won't affect your overall well-being is important, but I would say the next step would be finding a staff 
Um, now you can get into just the, the, the style of play, the style of, you know, coaching style, leadership style. But I, I do think it's important for players to have a good understanding. Now it's hard for whether it's players and families to know where you're at in their recruitment and, and where they see you on the big board. But a good indicator is when did they recruit you as it relates to the recruiting time period? Hmm. You know, if, if, if a school is coming on and it's late recruitment, you know, the season's about to start in let's say August or school starting in August and it's July and they're offering you a scholarship that late. I mean, that should kind of tell you that, Hey, like, you know, you weren't one of their priorities early on. And typically speaking for coaching staff, if you're a priority from day one, that that shows the level of commitment that they have to you and your, and your family and your, and, and I think that that's, again, that's really, really important. So, you know, I know, I know a lot of guys that, that have been, that have played at multiple levels or have been recruited by multiple levels. And they're trying to decipher between, okay, this level and that level, give you an example, a kid who's getting recruited by a division two, and then a division one comes late mm. and they take that division one, you know, uh, offer, whether it's a full offer or not, it, it just, I, it's hard to, I don't, you know, you never want to discourage a kid or make him think, make him or her think that, you know, they're, they're not good enough because there's certainly some examples of kids going to places that, that then they were under recruited and, and succeeding. It's just the percentages show though, that that doesn't happen. Yeah, very often. And so, again, go to a place where you're wanted. And it's much easier to say that like, okay, well, how do I know I'm wanted? Well, how do you know is, is based on when did they start recruiting you, you know, in the recruiting process, if they were on you early on, then that means that they, they really, really do see the your value. And they, they really do want you if they're late, that doesn't necessarily mean that all the time, but it's just, it just shows that they had guys on their list that might've fallen through. And now, you're lower yeah. on the, the big board. So, yeah, I love, uh, I love that. That's great advice. I, I, I think that's a great, um, program to have running it, And I, we've spoken about this before, but that's something that you, you had a, such a great experience at Phoenix college. Um, but you, and they were on you all throughout your high school career. They were like, they really believed in you throughout high school. Right. But then you ch- chased the D one dream, if I'm not mistaken, and then ended up finding your way back to Phoenix college after some other things didn't work out is that am i getting that right yeah no you're right i mean i think when i they were my first regardless of level they were my first college basketball offer mm-hmm. and so you know that stuck with me and so when i went through my challenges after that first year and trying to find a school again i picked up the phone and i called the the person that stuck out in my mind as being you know this was the first school that recruited me or first offer and so funny enough you know they had already recruited other players, other guys that were the same position as me, but I'll never forget that conversation. And what we had was that I knew I was going to have opportunity. And for some time, for a lot of kids, they underestimate the importance of opportunity, Mm. right? And the amount of opportunity or just that head coach knew what I was going to bring to the table. And regardless of who we recruited, he knew, I remember him telling me right away, like, yeah, we'll make it work. We'll find a way to make it work. And, and Mm. sure enough, you know, he, he did see, my potential and value and I and I got the opportunity that I was seeking because if I had gone to a school that let's just give you I'll give you the alternative if I had gone to a place where maybe it's 50 50 and they had recruited other guys I don't know if I would have received the type of opportunity that I had 
mm. early on to succeed. And as you know, Billy, as a player, you know, sometimes some of that confidence comes from knowing that the, there's going to be opportunity, right? And the coach really wants me here. Yeah. So, and there is something of a self-fulfilling prophecy that goes on where coaches, good coaches will treat their full scholarship guys the same way that they treat their walk-ons, right? But there is something of a, I think, a psychological process that's always humming in the background where if you've made this investment, this guy was high on your recruiting board, you went and you paid for him or her, you, there might be just a little bit of bias in that direction where they will have a better chance to succeed. And you, you brought up the fact that there are these stories of walk-ons or people who, who get picked up late in the recruiting process who go on to have great careers and then play professionally. But I try to remind people that, that those are exciting stories because they're so rare. And I think that I love what you say about going somewhere that's that you, you know that they've been recruiting you for a long time and they believe in you. Because I remember in my brief time at the Division II level, we would be all over guys and we'd be, we'd be um, recruiting them throughout the season. And they, we knew they'd be great fits in our program. We knew they'd do well at our level. But they keep holding on because they not not that they even have Division One offers, but they're just in contact with Division One schools, so they keep they wait. And what we what you want to communicate to them is, listen, you're you're getting this interest just in case the guys that they really want don't sign. Otherwise, they would have offered you already. And you can't say that flat out, like you said, you don't want to kill someone's confidence. But I think that's a great operating system that you laid out for how to know if you're really wanted well it's it's if they've been recruiting you all along so yeah no and i think the last thing i was just just to kind of again piggyback on not only that but get to the last point was is that i i have a family friend who had the youngest sibling in the family that i was recruiting and he was he's a coach's son so he's seeing his recruitment from or seeing recruitment from a lot of like low major division one schools and I felt like, you know, at the time I was a Division two school that his recruitment, he would have had a big impact at, at, at our school. And so, you know, I understood wanting and having the desire to, to go to Division one. I'm just using him as an example. But until his senior year of college, he hadn't really made truly the type of impact he wanted to make. Yeah. And um, I always tell kids when I'm recruiting them, it's not because of my story and where I went, but I do think it's important that kids can go to a place if they decide if they want to play. Depends on the ind- individual, right, and their personality. But if I sense that individual wants to again play, truly play, right, yeah. I think it's important for that individual to recognize where can I make an impact, mm-hmm. and maybe not your senior year, you know, mm-hmm. like where that's you didn't you have you basically were non-existent your first three years, and then you finally get that opportunity. For, maybe chance or something happens, but, um, where can you go and every single year feel like you're making an impact? And that's, that's no disrespect to the guys that have, that have done that and succeeded. And again, maybe that those stories are very few and far between and limited. It's just, I just remember when I had my mentor tell me when I was getting, seeing a ton of different recruitment, um, and different levels, you know, he told me like, go somewhere where you can have an impact. And I remember that, yeah. that, it made sense now having gone through it. So, yeah, I think that's great. I love, I love everything you said there. That's great. You ready for some, uh, rapid fire? 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Jordan, LeBron, or Kobe, and why? Oh, wow. I, uh, considering my when I was born and the, the time that I grew up, I'm definitely going to go with Jordan. Mm. You know, I, my why maybe may be biased. And, uh, but I would, I will say that I have not seen a competitor like Jordan in my lifetime. And I just think that, you know, his, his skill set is just timeless. He could play in any, any generation. It's not to say that the others can't, I just, uh, you know, Jordan is, is definitely the guy for me. So nice. Um, you're starting an NBA franchise tomorrow. Which player do you want to build around? Having talked about this in conversation previously and given it, giving it a lot of thought, I'm, I'm still going with, uh, Giannis. Mm. Giannis. Nice. I think that's a, that's a safe bet. I, I didn't, I don't know. I, I, I pay attention more to the Western conference, but I recently looked at his stats and I was like, Jesus, man, this guy's like a, it's like he's playing in a video game. <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. His stats. Well, and I think, I just think his, 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 uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Bill, no. but he, you know, he's still scratching the surface on his potential, which is, which is kind of scary. Right. I mean, yeah. I think that he hasn't reached the ceiling yet. Um, seems like so, a good guy too. Seems cool. Yeah. Yeah. Another reason why he's top of my list. I think he would be an amazing superstar, but, um, I'm sure any, whether it's one, a one B or one C, there's a lot of, a lot of good players out there. So you wouldn't be making a mistake picking <laughs> right. someone else. Um, Kendrick, Drake, or J. Cole? Who, man. Uh, honestly, I think, you know, we've shared so many experiences and also just conversations. You know, I'm a Cole guy, but. Good man. But yeah, it's hard to, 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 to say that and go against what Kendrick has been able to do. And, but, uh, I'm, I'm interested to kind of see what's next for the both of them. Mm. I would say. I'm going to go with Cole just because he, you know, that's, that's definitely my guy. Nice. All right. You're only allowed to listen to three Frank Ocean songs for the rest of your life. Which, <laughs> which three? Oh my gosh. Wow. I'm going to escape this question and just say, I'm going to put shuffle on and I just get three, then whatever. <laughs> Come <shuffle>. on. <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to go with Knights. Yes. I'm going to go with, let's see, Pyramids. Nice. And what do you think my last one is, Bill? I think you know which one my last one would be. I'd be surprised you didn't put Siegfried on there. <laughs> That's it. Okay. You got it. Okay. I think my list would be similar, yeah. That, that might be my three as well. Ah, um, oh man, it'd be close for uh, Pink and White or Oh, Pink Ivy. and White. Yeah, those would be tough to leave off. All right, which person, which person do you most admire, not including family? Which living person do you most admire? Whew. I'm going to go ahead and take it one step further. No, no one that's, that's close to me, right? Like a, like a close friend or my girlfriend. Or yeah, no. no, like no, no. Honestly, like, oh, man. All right, do me a favor. Tell me who yours is. Oh, that's going to help me. Yeah, that, that's, now, that the, now that it's flipped, it's actually, that's a hard question. Um, uh, it'd be something. It'd be like a between like Damian Lillard, Sam Harris, and um, 
Barack Obama? Yeah, see, I was going to say Barack, but I just, to be honest, actually, you know what? Growing up as a kid, I would say I really admired my favorite professional athlete was Steve Nash, but I felt like he had a, a unique, he was such a mindful athlete and as it related to whether it was social justice and politics, he kind of just, to me, exemplified what it really meant to use his platform. I think Steve Nash has done a lot of good in this world. Yeah. Not to say he's a perfect individual, but yeah, I, I, I would say Steve Nash, even still now. I mean, he, nice. he still does amazing work. So I love Steve Nash too. What is your most treasured possession? Ooh, most treasured possession. Time. Oh, nice. Jesus Christ. I just, I almost passed out when you said that. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, Does that count? Yeah, that, that should be everyone's, I think. Um, great answer. Uh, favorite character in a TV show? Oh, gosh. I think you know this, Bill. I'm going to let you just tell the world who my favorite <laughs> character is. I don't know. Is it, what is it, drama? Uh, close. I love drama, but it's not. Same show? It's got to be. Yeah, same show. Uh, oh, Ari. Yeah, it's Ari. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Ari Gold. Yeah. From Montrage. Nice. Um, well, that's all I got, man. I which one did I, I've told you this before, but it'd be cool to, to say it to publicly. It's just I know that the the coaching path can be really challenging and it's underpaid and underappreciated in a lot of ways. But um, you were the graduate assistant when I was going through my mental struggles as a sophomore at Regis. And um, you, uh, you really did a lot. It seemed like you really intuitively knew that I was struggling and just some of the stuff that the little things that you did for me that year, like just checking in or having lunch with me or making sure to get shots up with me to make sure I wasn't a forgotten player. It really went a long way. And I really, I'll always remember that and be grateful for it. So I say that just to point out that um, for you and any coach in a similar situation who's listening, that you are definitely having a bigger impact on the world that than it might seem sometimes. Because I know we've talking about we've spoken about how grueling and difficult the coaching journey can be with lack of job security and um, you're being underpaid and whatnot. But just um, yeah, just to, for you to know that the the kind of impact that you made for me, I'm sure, is just a drop in the bucket of what you're doing for so many young men in coaching men's basketball. And um, so I'm really glad to see that you're able to make that impact. And I'm looking forward to see where your coaching career goes. Wow, Billy, I really appreciate the uh, the kind words. But, you know, I honestly, it's, it's you know, the, the amount of love and gratitude is reciprocal. I, it's pretty remarkable that I'm able to, to be on this podcast. It just shows um, I'm just really, really, again, happy to hear you. You say that, but also know that, you know, it's a two-way street. And so I really enjoyed our relationship and, and truly remarkable to be on this uh, this pod. You're doing an amazing thing. And, and so I just hope the, the listeners know that, you know, what you – the content that you provide and is, is truly remarkable and you're making an impact. I think I've told you this before, but I just want to make sure that I tell you this um, over the pod. So, But thank you, though. I'm, I feel honored and, and blessed, but I appreciate the kind words, Bill. You got it, man. Thank you, too. That's great. And um, we'll uh, hopefully have many more if I keep this experiment going. So thanks, Steve, for coming on. 
Thank you too, Bill. Uh, hope to talk to you soon, brother. All right, bro. <laughs> Take care. All right. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, Sunday Sauce. Every Sunday, I'll send out a small piece of content that's related to the topics I'm researching and exploring on this podcast. It could be a quote or an image or a short video or a piece of my own writing. Just something small and digestible that I think is worth looking at. I'll also announce when new content comes out, so it's really the best way to stay up to date with what I'm doing. To subscribe, you can visit billyhansen.net forward slash sauce. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter, and those links are in the show notes. Other ways to support the show include leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, sharing with friends and family, or posting on social media. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.